folks, welcome back to another episode of the Ubuntu Security Podcast. I'm Alex Murray. We've had a bit longer than expected break, but we are back on deck. The team were in Prague for well, two weeks for some of us and uh, one week for most of us, uh, both with a product uh, roadmap sprint and an engineering sprint canonical discussing all things, uh, I guess, Ubuntu security across uh, both the distro and others and uh, looking at what we have done for the last six months and what we're going to do for the next six months. So we will have a bit of a discussion of that coming up. Plus, uh, one of our new team members, Andre, has done the start of a new segment looking at some academic uh, research, which is great. And we will do our usual roundup of security fixes that have gone into the supported Ubuntu releases over the past week. So this last week, there were 57 unique CVEs addressed by the team. And up first was an update for Django. So uh, a bit of a low priority one here, but this was for Django uh, on all of our supported releases. So that's 1804, 2004, 2204 LTS respectively, and uh, 2210 Kudu, uh, which is still supported for another month or two, and uh, 2304, the recently released Lunar Lobster. Uh, in this case, uh, this is an issue around file uploading. So uh, Django supports file uploading through a couple of different form constructs that you can use, uh, and then it performs various validation on the file that's been uploaded. Now, it wasn't really a primarily documented feature, but it was possible to be able to upload multiple files uh, through the forms by attaching more than one uh, HTML attribute to the form. Uh, but in this case, uh, Django would only uh, do validation on the last file that was uploaded there. And so the others would, uh, I guess, escape this validation. So the upstream developers have uh, fixed this by essentially raising an error in the case that you try to uh, attach multiple uh, HTML elements to a single form and therefore do multiple file upload. Uh, and they add a new option that you can use to restore the old behavior if you really want. And in that case, it goes and actually validates uh, those other files as well, which is good to see. And there was, and there was an update for uh, Ruby, uh, a couple of different CVEs here, uh, 1604 ESM, 1804 LTS and 22.04 LTS respectively. Uh, both of these were regular expression denial of service issues, uh, REDOS, which actually is, I guess, a bit of a theme of this episode, as we will see. Uh, essentially, uh, a regular expression denial of service is the ability to cause a CPU-based denial of service through some crafted input that then gets validated by a regular expression. And the regular expression is a, a compact way of encoding some way of, you know, parsing these things but there's actually code behind the scenes that does that and there can be kind of algorithmic complexities uh, associated with that that aren't necessarily obvious and so you can essentially you know with a crafted input cause it to spend some kind of very large amount of cpu time parsing that one of these was in uri parsing and the other one was in time parsing. Uh, it was found actually that then that fix for the URI parsing one uh, caused a separate regression. So that one has been reverted. Uh, that is still under investigation and uh, we hope to be able to get a fix out for that again in the future. After that was some updates for our kernels. So we had an update for OEM kernel for 2204 LTS users. Uh, it fixed a single CVE in the Plan 9 uh, file system protocol for Zen, uh, the virtualization system. A user after free there that could lead to denial of service or possibly information leak. Then we had an update for uh, the Intel IoTG kernel for our 2204 LTS users as well. 10 different CVE fixes were rolled into that one. Uh, of that, two of them uh, we deemed as high priority. Uh, one of these was in uh, the overlay file system um, driver. Essentially, overlay uh, FS is a union file system that allows you to kind of take a couple different kind of mounts or file systems and stack them one on top of the other, and it kind of presents like a unified view of the two. It's often used for things like uh, SG routes, 
particularly say uh, as Ubuntu developers, we use that a lot, uh, where you have, say, a pristine source copy of a, you know, in this case, say, let's I've got a Bionic uh, SG root. So that's kind of like a you know, basic Bionic environment that I can use to build packages for Bionic inside that. Uh, and so it has this pristine copy of that, and then it will spawn a working version of that where it mounts like an, a little writable file system on top of that, and you can make changes to that. Uh, and then when that is finished, they can tear that down and sort of keep the original pristine one there and allow it to kind of easily spin up uh, new copies of that. In this case, uh, through OverlayFS, there's an interaction with setUID binaries and the no SUID mount option. So the no SUID uh, mount option means that when you mount a file system with that, uh, any files with the setUID bit in them get ignored, um, which is, you know, I guess good for a security point of view. If you're, say, mounting some, I don't know, untrusted, or you say you're a user mounting a USB stick or something like that, you know, you could have arbitrary setUID root binaries on there and you wouldn't want them necessarily um, getting getting mounted uh, and having uh, root permission so that you could go and execute those things and, you know, potentially get root yourself. So, uh, you know, that's a quite a common use case in this case uh, if you had the underlying file system was mounted no uh, suid and then uh, the, uh, you would try to copy the file in that and sort of copy up to the uh, the one that's mounted on top of that uh, you could then possibly get that suid bit copied as a result and therefore retain the set uid bit permission even though it wasn't originally there through the no suid mount option and then a local user could just execute that to gain root privileges that was fixed uh, to respect that. Plus, uh, the other vulnerability was a use after free in the traffic control index uh, classifier, the TC index classifier in the networking subsystem. And that was found uh, in March this year. Now, speaking of vulnerabilities in uh, the TC index filter, uh, another one was then found in April. And so that was fixed then for uh, kernels in 18.04 LTS and 16.04 ESM. In that case, uh, the fix, though, this time it looks like the upstream developers kind of got sick of vulnerabilities being found in this. Uh, subsystem TC index filter and so they just went and removed it entirely in the upstream kernel so that's the fix that then we've brought into uh, the those kernels there as well so uh, this was something that was uh, not used much anyway but if you are using that unfortunately we have had to introduce that breaking change as well to stay consistent with the upstream kernel so just be aware of that one after that, we had an update for Erlang. Uh, this is a single CVE and this was fixed in 2004 LTS 2204 LTS and 2210 uh, in this case, uh, Erlang failed to properly maintain state during the TLS handshake when validating client certificates. Uh, so basically, if uh, you have a uh, web app written or a, you know, an application written in Erlang that's using uh, certificates for client authentication, uh, a malicious client could essentially send the certificate over and then just simply omit sending over the TLS handshake message that tells the server, now you need to go and validate that certificate. Uh, the server then would just immediately proceed to the next state and assume the certificate had been validated and so you can bypass all the regular uh, validation checks that are done. Uh, note this obviously only affects Erlang applications that use client certificates for authentication and that means they need to be using uh, the verify verify peer um, combination of options in their SSL uh, setup. Um, this does affect some of our older releases as well. Uh, it's actually one that I've been personally looking at. I'm still planning to try and update that for uh, 18.04 LTS, uh, the Bionic Beaver release as well. Uh, the backport for that is you know, more complicated, basically as you know, releases get older, it gets harder to bring these things back. But yeah, I'm still trying, planning to try and get that done. So yeah, watch out for a future episode. There'll be a probably dash two uh, USN on that one. Then we had an update for MySQL. Uh, this is the latest upstream release point releases for uh, various different releases here. So uh, 8.0.33 for our more recent releases. So that's 20.04 LTS, 22.04 LTS, and 23.04. And 5.7.42 for 16.04 ESM and 18.04 LTS. 
as this is uh, the latest upstream point releases, it does also include bug fixes and possibly new features or incompatible changes. So I've got a list of the uh, links to both of those from the full upstream uh, details in the show notes if you want to go check those out. After that was an update for WebKit GTK. In this case, uh, six different CVEs for uh, 2004 LTS, 2204 LTS, 2210, and 2304. Uh, most of these were uh, use after freeze plus uh, various uh, issues in uh, cross-origin, or should I say the ability to bypass same origin policy or the ability to track users across different origins as well. Free type was updated for a single CVE uh, for 2004 LTS, 2204 LTS, 2210, and 2304 as well. This was an integer overflow when parsing a malformed font file. That could lead to a denial of service or remote code execution, which is interesting, particularly in the advent of web fonts that we have nowadays, where a web page can just refer to some arbitrary font somewhere else on the internet. So that is one to, I guess, be aware of and make sure you're updated for. Uh, then we had some updates for uh, some more of our kind of enterprise packages. So Ceph was updated for four different CVEs uh, for some of our more recent releases. And this is a backport of the most recent uh, upstream point releases. So again, that's 17.2.5 for 22.10 and 22.04 LTS or 15.2.17 for 20.04 LTS or 12.2.13 for 18.04 LTS. So with, uh, new versions of Ceph, everyone. Uh, a couple of the OpenStack components were updated as well. Uh, OpenStack Heat, which is the orchestration service for OpenStack. Uh, there was an information leak via uh, one of the APIs there that was fixed. And uh, OpenStack Neutron, which is the virtual network service, was updated for five different CVEs as well. Speaking of uh, virtual networking, uh, OpenV switch itself was updated uh, for a single CVE. And this goes all the way back to 18.04 LTS and everything since then. In this case, it failed to properly handle uh, IP packets, which specified a protocol of zero. So uh, in IPv6, the protocol value of zero used in the next header option for IPv6 specifies hop by hop options. But you know, if you have that in, say, IPv4, it doesn't really mean anything because in IPv4, the protocol field should be four, not surprisingly. Um, but in this case, if you did have a packet that had protocol zero, uh, it would uh, in install a data flow path for that in both the kernel and the user space, which would then unfortunately match all IP protocols for that flow. That would then mean uh, any other packets that were sent without, say, a protocol of zero would also be matched. That could then cause them to be handled by that data flow rule and therefore be handled incorrectly compared to how they should be. And so you can imagine that's possibly things would be allowed where they should be denied or other things like that as well, hence this being a security issue. What else? Uh, CSS what was updated? Uh, yes, you heard that right. CSS what, which is a couple of different CVEs here, back to 604 ESM, 1804 LTS, and 2004 LTS. This is a uh, CSS selector parser for Node.js. Uh, both of these, again, were regular expression denial of service issues. And yeah, speaking of regular expression denial of service issues, the last thing updated in the past week was SQL parse. This is a uh, Python library for uh, parsing SQL expressions uh, for 1804 LTS, 2004 LTS, 2204 LTS, 2210, and 2304, the Lunar Lobster. And again, this was another regular expression denial of service issue. So I wonder if someone's been out there kind of, you know, trying to fuzz all these different things with crafted input to regular expressions, or maybe, you know, everyone's just kind of wising up to regular expression denial of services. But yeah, hey, you know, three different packages updated in the last week for uh, those issues. So yeah, that really was the theme of the week for security updates this past week. Okay, and that's it. That takes us to the end of security updates for the past week. 
So moving on, uh, like I said at the start, the team has been away for a few weeks in Prague. Uh, this is the essentially the kind of beginning of cycle sprint for 2310 uh, release coming up in the next six months. But it also looks back on the previous six months of work that we did for the 2304 release. Uh, so as I say, that was both uh, an engineering sprint where all of the engineers get together and we hang out together in a conference room in a hotel in Prague for the week in this case, uh, going over all sorts of topics and things. So we kind of do deep dives into various aspects across the team, like I don't know what kind of tooling and processes that we want to try and improve across the team, uh, try and get a common understanding of various processes that we may do. Uh, we also had a session talking about the culture and history of the team, which I guess is really important as our team grows because we want to make sure we maintain our you know, really good supportive culture uh, as that does happen and giving some of the context I guess how things are and you know trying to build on that as well but we also go into some of the more mundane stuff like you know how do we even name things like how do we refer and name uh, name security updates that go into Ubuntu Pro versus the regular Ubuntu archive you know making sure that it's clear when we release Ubuntu security notices you know which bits go where or where you can get them from and that kind of thing as well as our various policies and procedures around doing updates for Ubuntu Pro. Then we had some sessions devoted uh, to snaps and kind of looking at how do we do appropriate security reviews for that and making sure everyone's on the same path for that uh, and even looking at how to coordinate better with the SnapD team. Uh, we had some stuff looking at technical debt within our team and tooling and how we can tackle that. And then finally, kind of, I guess we went over plans for uh, the next six months of work, which I suppose is probably more interesting to people listening to this. So some highlights for that are things like continuing to work uh, to use AppArmor to tighten uh, controls over unprivileged usernames spaces within Ubuntu to just kind of make sure that only things that really need unprivileged username spaces get them and everything else is denied by default which would be really cool. We're also doing some various improvements to our oval feeds to make them more useful to users and our customers alike. We're going to look at utilizing the Canonical Hardware Certifications Lab, uh, which is used for, I guess, testing Ubuntu on all different kinds of hardware platforms that we certify. But as a team, we want to use that for testing security updates for packages that require particular pieces of hardware to make sure we're not regressing things. So you can think of things like Intel Microcode or, I don't know, packages that deal with, say, NVMe drives or want uh, various graphics drivers and things like that. Uh, speaking of AppArmor, like I did, or we're going to improve AppArmor to add hopefully more fine-grained network mediation and uh, better mediation of IOU ring and going to work on supporting various confidential computing use cases and the like as well. I've got a link in the show notes actually to a really good uh, webinar that uh, Ishlal, the product manager for uh, confidential computing on Ubuntu, uh, did for that. So check that out. Plus, we will continue doing all our usual maintenance stuff like you know, making our FIPS and CIS and DISA-STIG uh, certification work better and the usual security maintenance and the like too. So yeah, that's a bit of a, I guess, a summary of what the team has been up to uh, for the sprint. Okay, so another thing that I wanted to bring this week, actually something I'm really excited to bring is a brand new segment that is from one of our new team members in the Ubuntu security team, Andre Yosef. So Andre has been with the security team for actually just over a month and is already uh, kicking goals. Previously, he was a tech lead at uh, SecOps Startup, developing open source tools for automating various cybersecurity solutions. And so he brings a great range of experience and ideas to the team. And one of his great ideas was to start a new segment on the podcast where he would look at uh, different academic research papers uh, in cybersecurity and kind of summarize them and I guess bring them to a wider audience. 
And so to start it off, uh, Andre selected a paper uh, from last year. It's called Modeling Realistic Adversarial Attacks Against Network Intrusion Detection Systems. So basically, Andre digs into the study, kind of gives you a good summary of where it's at, um, you know, kind of what they did, what their research was, and what they found. But in this case, really what they're doing is um, developing a model for attacks against network intrusion detection systems. So kind of say, how can we model this? What are the different parameters and the like? And they have a particular focus on uh, IDSs that are based on AI and ML approaches. All right, but I won't do too much. I'll let Andre take it away. Hi there, my name is Andre. I'm a new member of the security team from Ubuntu and I'm thrilled to be now part of this podcast. We will begin a new segment today in which we will delve further into academia and examine papers on cybersecurity. We will analyze them to understand the ideas put forward by the authors, the reason they are novel and how security professionals might employ these ideas in their research, development or analysis. Modeling realistic adversarial attacks against network intrusion detection systems is the title of the study that we will be looking at today. The work is published in ACM's Digital Threats journal by five academics from Italy and Liechtenstein. It's one of the most cited cybersecurity papers from 2022 and examines the intersection of computer security and one of the fastest growing domain right now, artificial intelligence. We will set the stage by introducing the key topics. One way of classifying security mechanisms in a computer network is to evaluate where they are located. Host-based solutions are those that are deployed on a host within that network. It is a program that runs continually, infrequently or on demand that searches various areas of that particular host. The host-based scanning varies from the normal files and processes, as in CLAM antivirus, to kernel virtual memory, as in the rootkit hunter project. The analysis of communication between hosts in the network is another method of spotting malicious behavior. A security solution might examine a packet's payload, like the domain contained in a DNS query. Because this strategy is not practical for encrypted packets, such as DNS over HTTPS, other solutions inspect metadata, which is information that describes the participants, payload and metrics about the communication, the destination MAC address, the cipher suite used during a TLS handshake, and the, the time interval between two successive ICMP packets are a few examples of metadata of each kind. To mention a few network-based safeguards, we have the uncomplicated firewall Archim as a full packet capture and Suricata, which can operate in two modes, intrusion detection and intrusion prevention. Machine learning is another topic to take into account, as its adoption in recent years has enabled society to develop novel answers to complicated problems, the cybersecurity industry has not been overlooked. The focus has primarily been on spam detectors and anti-malware programs, or through other research in academia and industry has examined the use of ML in network intrusion detection systems. But how exactly do these ML IDSs operate? Both during training and production, the models do the same analysis on a packet. It is parsed to determine its fields and some attributes are retrieved from the raw data to create a classification that determines whether the packet is benign or malicious. In the latter case, an alarm is generated. Training and production are different in that the former employs samples that are pre-collected, while the latter analyzes one that have never been seen before. 
Up to this point everything seems fine, but an arm race is taking place. As defenders implement more sophisticated solutions in their infrastructures, hostile actors devise innovative adversarial attacks against these AI-based systems, in which they fool the model into forecasting results in their favor. This could indicate, for instance, DOS attacks by misclassifying legitimate requests as malicious or the use of exploits by misclassifying malicious requests as legitimate. Having stated that, the goal of the study is to develop a realistic theoretical model of how these attackers may look. The extent to which the attacker has control over the ML-based intrusion detection system is how the authors define the idea of power. It was divided into five factors, each of which offers a unique description of the attacker's strength. Let's look into each of them. To begin, we have knowledge of the training data. If the attacker gets read access to the dataset, she could examine the data to look for patterns among samples that were labeled as harmless. Do all datasets bending files have PySLR and canaries enabled? Then let's develop a malware that acts as a dropper and has the same security features enabled. The likelihood of malware being discovered is decreased in this way. Additionally, if the attacker has right privileges, she may infect harmful samples to be categorized as Benin. Secondly, the attacker might be aware of the feature set, meaning the specific data from the sample that the IDS examines in order to make a forecast. If the attacker is aware that ELF sections with unusual names are not inspected by the MLIDS, the malware can transfer its dangerous code from the .text section to a strangely named one. The knowledge of the detection model, specifically the algorithm and its parameters, is another factor that contributes to modeling power. The authors don't insist on this unrealistic detail because the only way to know it is to completely compromise the IDS. Fourth, the attacker might possess oracle abilities which would allow him to submit some inputs and observe the accompanying predictions. Unfortunately for him, he might run into two problems. There may be additional security solutions installed that detect a huge number of requests to the MLIDS, causing him to be identified. On the other hand, it could be challenging for the attacker to learn the outcome of the forecast. Since we are talking about IDSs rather than IPSs, the detections are likely rooted into a CM, a system that is difficult to hack. The depth of the manipulation is the final variable in the concept of power. Can the attacker just change raw data like fields in a DNS request? Or can she manipulate high-level representations such as the combination of fields in that request that are specific to a model? Thus, the author's conclusion was that the following attack is the most plausible one. Manipulation of raw data and not high-level abstractions partial knowledge about the extracted features, no oracle power, and no access to the training data. The document displays a table categorizing various studies published up until March 2021 by using analysis with these five power variables in mind. It cites a paper from 2019 as a suitable example in which an attacker reduced the 99% detection rate to 70% all under real-world conditions. 
In conclusion, the first edition of this new podcast section covered modeling realistic attacks on ML-based intrusion detection systems. After observing the differences between host-based and network-based security solutions, we discovered the notion of attack power which consists of five pillars. Oracle power, manipulation depth, and knowledge of the training data, feature set, and detection model. If you have any recommendations for improving this section, please contact us at security at Ubuntu.com. Until next time. And thanks, Andre. I look forward to uh, the next installment of this that you can bring. And yeah, I wonder what kind of uh, research you look into then. I guess we'll all just have to wait and see. All right, so that takes us to the end of this week's episode. Thanks to everyone for listening again, as always. Uh, if you want to get in contact with us, as Andre said, you can email us, security at Ubuntu.com, or you can find us on uh, the Ubuntu security channel on Barbera.chat, uh, the old IRC network. Uh, we also have a security section on discourse at Ubuntu.com if you're part of that community. And finally, hey, you can find us in the Fediverse. Uh, we are at Ubuntu security at Fostedon.org. Okay, so we'll be back in with you all next week. But until then, remember, keep calm because we've got your back and I'll speak to you soon. Bye.